brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. In this episode, we're bringing you something a bit different. Penguin Perspectives. Penguin Perspectives is a collection of essays by Penguin authors, written as a direct response to the COVID-19 crisis. These authors have recorded their essays from their homes during lockdown, and these recordings are collected together here. Here to introduce the collection is the CEO of Penguin Random House, Tom Weldon. In the first 85 years Penguin has been publishing books, there have been a handful of moments when the world seemed to change overnight. One of those was on the 13th of March 2020, when the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. Within days it became clear this was not something any of us were going to be able to sit out as spectators, no matter where we lived or how fortunate our lives happened to be. As always in times of disaster, it was nurses, doctors, carers and the sick they tended to, who paid the first and heaviest price. As Mary Blackman points out in the essay which opens this collection, we learned quickly and with great humility thereafter about the other people upon whom we vitally depend. Delivery drivers, supermarket and warehouse staff, refuse collectors, food pickers. The rest of us have our part to play too, contending with the curtailing of our freedoms, And, as Jung Chang writes beautifully in these pages, the ache of being separated from the people we love. What role in all of this for a book publisher? As ever, through times good and bad, we stood by the principles set out by our founder, Alan Lane, and continued to create and distribute books that would enrich and entertain our readers, as widely and as quickly as we could, including to the most vulnerable but it still felt like there was more we might do to play our part, both in documenting this extraordinary moment in time and shaping a vision for what might come next. So, in the days after the crisis began, we turned to our authors and asked them, what is this crisis revealing about us? And what do you hope it might change about our future? The resulting pieces range from the political to the personal, from science to business, philosophy to art, Shared for free online, we hope they would bring comfort and inspiration to our readers, helping them to think in new ways about the biggest and fastest moving story of our lifetime. I hope Penguin Perspectives acts not only as a collection of interesting essays, but as a reminder of what great writing has always had to offer us, particularly during times of fear. The audacity it requires to think of big solutions, the reassurance it takes to know we're not alone, and above all, a little of the hope we need to pick ourselves up and carry on. A New Normal, written and read by Mallory Blackman. All crises bring out the best and the worst in us. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we have witnessed compassion and sacrifice, friendship and humour. We have also witnessed shameless profiteering, blatant selfishness, and some of those with a lot, calling on those with a lot less to shoulder more than their fair share of the financial burden. 
What this pandemic has revealed more than anything else is how interconnected we all are. How the fate of people on the other side of the world, or indeed the other side of the street, may have an impact on all our lives and our sense of well-being. No country is an island. No island is an island. No person is an island. We are one large human community sharing the same planet. This pandemic has highlighted the fact that long-term individualism just doesn't work. We have all had a stark lesson in the need to embrace community. We need to look out for and look after each other because if one hurts, then we all hurt. The COVID-19 virus has revealed those who serve others and those who seek to serve only themselves. We can now fully appreciate the true worth of doctors, nurses, refuse collectors, cleaners, teachers, supermarket shelf stackers, food pickers, farmers, firefighters, care home workers, transport workers, delivery drivers, and all public service workers. They are the ones who have been asked to step up and look after the rest of us. They are the ones risking not just themselves, but potentially their loved ones to see to the care of others. It has become starkly apparent who society cannot do without in times of crisis. It seems to me that after this pandemic is well and truly over, we all have a choice. Do we go back to the system we had before, where individualism and pulling up the ladder were applauded and lauded? Or do we try to adopt a more caring, communal attitude, understanding that the fate of our neighbours is inexorably linked to our own. The COVID-19 crisis has proved that the latter is not just possible, not just desirable, but necessary for our mutual long-term societal survival. My hope is that we continue to view our neighbours as potential friends and allies rather than probable enemies. My hope is that we, as a society, no longer listen to those who wish to spread hatred and division to suit their own political and economic ends. My hope is that we no longer accept that the challenges of tackling homelessness, poverty and lack of opportunity are to be filed under the heading insurmountable. We've seen in recent weeks that where there is a societal will which works for the good of the many, there is always a way. My fervent hope is that the appreciation we currently feel for public sector workers continues once this current pandemic crisis is over. Let's hope that all strata of society appreciate the need for public sector workers to be adequately remunerated for the work they do, rather than having their pay increase voted down in Parliament to the cheers of too many politicians. We need a new way of thinking and being. The old normal wasn't working for everyone. In fact, it only worked for a select few. It's time to create and embrace a new normal. How Lucky We Were, written and read by Lee Child. Our daughter was born 40 years ago in Manchester, England. When she was three months old, we flew her to New York to visit with her American grandparents. If we repeated that journey today, our trip would be one meter longer than it was back then. I first went to Australia 20 years ago 
to promote my new book. If I went for this year's book, my trip would be a meter and a half shorter than it was back then. Continents are always drifting, some getting closer, some further apart. Naturally, we don't notice. Our brains are tuned to live at human speed, starting with split seconds, the pounce of a predator, Lionel Messi's swerve in the box, and continuing through minutes and hours, bread rising, meat cooking, and then days and years and lifetimes. I knew my parents and grandparents and had some idea of their lives and their circumstances. But further back than them, I see nothing but vague gray antecedents. I know I had ancestors, but I know nothing about them and can't picture them going about their business. History to me, instinctively, is about 100 years long, maybe 150. The future extends maybe another 50. My baby girl getting older, going gray, getting aches and pains, getting by on her pension. Call it 200 years in total of small human dramas, all played out against a solid and unchanging landscape. Except the landscape isn't solid and unchanging at all. When my grandfather was born, New York was three and a quarter meters closer to London than it is today, the width of your kitchen. Sydney was more than nine meters further away, two family cars end to end. If we could find a vantage point, and if we could retune our brains and scale them up so that we could watch 90,000 years or 90 million or 900 million, like we watched 90 minutes of Messi playing for Barcelona, we would see a roaring, grinding, howling, tumultuous planet exploding through one huge change after another, full of constant incident. A blast of heat, a sudden chill, a mountain range thrown miles in the air, an ocean emptying, a valley flooding, continents floating like blundering rafts on boiling magma, giant beasts flourishing then disappearing, earthquakes wrenching, volcanoes discharging. It would be like a July 4th fireworks show with rapid stuttering explosions coming thick and fast, too many to count, but each one of them changing everything forever. Our retuned vision would see faltering prototype populations of plants and animals and early humans, sometimes flourishing, sometimes struggling, periodically killed off by heat or cold or floods or disasters, one after the other, a rapid-fire parade rushing on and off the stage. Most of all, we would see tsunamis of disease racing back and forth across the globe, constantly like raking machine gun fire. Our scaled-up brains would see the Black Death of the 14th century and again in the 17th and the Spanish flu of the 20th, bang, 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 with barely a pause between. All of those worst scourges were caused by viruses, tiny insignificant bundles of RNA, never exactly alive and therefore never exactly dead. Those that did their dirty work a million years ago, or 10 million or 100, are still there, most decomposed and useless, but some still preserved, deep in the permafrost, deep in the soil, just waiting. Meanwhile, the planet is warming quite naturally, just a blink of an eye ago to our retuned vision. 
What we now know is our nations and countries were crushed rock under a trillion tons of ice until the glaciers receded and survivors emerged and began to build the modern world, which added an unnatural component to the warming and built a runaway trend. Now the permafrost is softening and snuffling animals are rooting around and immense human populations are eating the animals. And now we have our fourth pandemic crisis in 700 years. What happens next depends on how soon the fifth crisis arrives. It seems clear that our current lockdown can't continue indefinitely. People will be out and about before the COVID virus is gone altogether. It will go endemic and become a low-level but permanent concern. We'll get used to it. Maybe a degree of social distancing will endure for a spell, and maybe the Asian habit of wearing masks as a matter of course will become a standard practice everywhere. Life will return to some kind of normal. If the next virus waits a few decades, we might respond the same way we did this time. But if it comes sooner, we won't. We won't have the will or the patience, or perhaps the capability. Huge populations will be drifting away from the equator because of climate, displacing failed farmers who in turn will be moving north and south towards the poles, and so on. The next virus, and the next, and the next, will have a field day. That's our future, the same as our past, with tsunamis of disease racing back and forth. We will have no choice but to accept an ancient degree of mortality. In rare moments of repose, we will look back and think how lucky people were to perch briefly on a few thousand years of stability amid the planet's four billion years of raging chaos. My Chinese Family During Coronavirus, written and read by Yung Chang. On the 4th of May this year, my mother, who lives in Chengdu, China, will be 89. She's increasingly frail, and I long to be with her. Because of the books I have written, which are all banned in China, I've only been allowed 15 days a year to visit her, a privilege I gained thanks to the help of the British Foreign Office. These visits are far from guaranteed, and each year I have to make a fresh request and wait for it to be granted, a process that's always enormously time-consuming and emotionally draining. Last year, as the political climate in China was worrying, I decided not to apply One of the many considerations was that my visa application could be turned down and that would set a precedent for future rejections, in which case I might never see my mother again. My mother also urged me not to come, and perhaps to make me feel better, she told me to look at the bright side. In another year's time, the fact that I had not seen her for two years could make a stronger case. We looked forward to this May. Now, thanks to coronavirus, I will not be able to see my mother. I'm of course sad, 
but thinking of all those people who have died or lost their loved ones. My troubles are minor. My mother is in fact in a fortunate position. She had been rushed to hospital in an emergency just before the new year, and while she was still there in January, the pandemic broke out, and the hospital was locked down with her locked in. She is still there and safe, and I am hugely relieved. The hospital doesn't allow visitors, so even my sister, who lives in the same city, is unable to see my mother. The whole of Chengdu has been in lockdown, and my sister has been cooped up in her small fourth-floor flat for well over two months. In that confined indoor space and on her own, she has shown what seems to me amazing resourcefulness. Instead of feeling depressed or restless, she is unfailingly upbeat, busy with her many interests and friendships, and she has enlivened my own life in self-isolation here in London. By supplying me every day with amusing tidbits, she's a fountain of such crucial information as how to make sanitizers or what type of face masks to use. My brother in London, Xiao Hei, and his wife Guo Rong, give me much valuable support. At one point during the pandemic, they thought. John, my husband, and I might run low on food, and so stayed up into the small hours, queuing at Ocado online to try to secure some essentials for us. Their only child, Joe, is a nephew of whom I feel immensely proud, more so today than ever, because he's a frontline NHS doctor. Working at the intensive care unit of London St Thomas's Hospital, right at the heart of Britain's fight against the coronavirus, brilliant, charming, and totally dedicated to his job, Joe is working round the clock, saving lives. Even on his rare days off, he's frequently called upon to do extra shifts when his colleagues are struck down by the disease. He goes to the battleground of heavy bombardment to face daily close shaves with understated resolve and good humor. To his family, he makes light of the danger he's in. Around this time of the year, in the past, in April, I was often woken in the middle of the night by a sense of dread, anticipating some new hurdle turning up in the morning that would threaten my visit to my mother. This year, I wake up feeling anxious about whether Joe has adequate personal protective equipment. Protect the NHS has a very personal meaning for me. When the pandemic is over, when families can get together again, 
Chong and I will meet up with my brother and sister-in-law, and we will raise a glass to Joe and his lovely wife, Joe, a fellow NHS doctor. Then I hope I will be able to visit my mother for her ninetieth birthday. My mother thinks this is an excellent idea and has already begun to plan what treats she will give me. Although our meeting is more than a year away, and in the meantime a multitude of plights are hovering over us, her health problems that have sent her into intensive care several times recently, my uncertainty about obtaining a visa. And the coronavirus pandemic, whose outcome is still unknown, my mother regards them all as mere obstacles to be overcome, and is determined to see them as passing hazards, like all the trials and tribulations in her long and eventful life. The calm intelligence of the BBC. Written and read by Nick Hornby. I have put sugar in my coffee all my life, but a few days ago, during the second week of the lockdown, I stopped just to see if I could. There are many other tasks I might have chosen to complete. Of course, I could be watching all the films of Jean-Luc Godard or reading the classics. It is customary to say re-reading in a literary forum such as this, but I've read so few that it would be perverse to revisit the ones I've actually chalked off. But none of these are passive ambitions; they require something from me. Not putting sugar in my coffee is, it seems to me, the perfect lockdown achievement because it lightens my daily load. I used to have to find a teaspoon, put it in a sugar bowl, and stir. Needless activity. All gone now. Watching television has been achieved too. I've watched tons of it brilliantly. Has anyone else finished Netflix? Someone tweeted the other day. And though I have found so much on the streamers to love, have you seen the Apollo Eleven documentary or Honeyland, American Factory, Ozark, The Americans? There is also something slightly unnerving about TV channels that offer no sense of time or place, just a whole lot of great content. And occasionally disorienting images of people doing all the things we used to do before this started. Sometimes you need to be rooted in the moment, even if, probably, especially if the moment is a traumatic one. The current weekly applause for the NHS is valuable in all sorts of ways, but doing the same thing at the same time as other people, a simple pleasure that we used to take for granted, is clearly important to us. We love Netflix because it allows us to watch what we want when we want. Watching live TV reminds us that, for better or worse, we are a small part of something bigger. Before all this started, the BBC was under assault, apparently because of its independence. It was, is being threatened with all sorts, including the loss of its lifeblood license fee. The BBC, one of our crowning achievements as a nation. I will not waste space here listing what it's given us: the comedy and the drama and the sport, some of the things that have helped define who we are now. You know that already, even if you're the dimmest Tory MP in Parliament. But right now, the BBC is helping me to live through and understand a crisis. 
I'm 62 at the time of writing. It would be wrong to say that I haven't really lived through history. I can remember seeing clips from JFK's funeral on the BBC News, and I can remember my father making me watch Churchill's coffin being carried up the Thames. And then there are the moments that many of you remember, the fall of the wall, September the 11th, July the 7th. But this is the first time, really, that a historical event has affected me in the moment as it's happening over a prolonged period of time. The wartime analogy is already getting old at the time of writing, but that sense of simultaneously wanting to know and not wanting to know what is happening, reading grim figures, looking for glimmers of hope, day after day, when any glance out of the window, at empty streets, shuttered shops, the occasional masked face, will illustrate history for you. It's everywhere. Netflix can help us forget it, but it can't explain, inform, illuminate. In the US, people have literally been made ill by the mendacity and willful stupidity of a popular TV news channel of the type that the government seems to want to see in the UK. Our national broadcaster, meanwhile, has tried to inform and educate us while entertaining us, as its remit has always been. Last night, I'm writing this on April the 9th, 2020, Emily Maitness began Newsnight with a blistering editorial comment delivered to camera. Those serving on the front line right now, bus drivers and shelf stackers, nurses, care home workers, hospital staff and shopkeepers, are disproportionately the lower paid members of our workforce, she said. They are more likely to catch the disease because they are more exposed. This is a health issue with huge ramifications for social welfare, and it's a welfare issue with huge ramifications for public health. Is there any liberal bias in there? Or is it simply a thoughtful person telling us the truth? Can you imagine hearing that on Fox News? Can you imagine a future in Britain where there is no platform for a TV presenter to speak like that? Most of the things I want to come out of this crisis won't happen. The air won't stay as clean as it is now. The traffic will come back. We will forget that our old and vulnerable always need protection. But heaven help the politicians who try to cut anything anywhere in the NHS. I would like to think that the BBC's service, its calm intelligence and dedication to our health and our ability to cope with what 2020 has thrown at us, might make it similarly untouchable and give those who wish it harm pause for thought. An Invitation to Choose the Life You Want, written and read by Edith Eager. Hello, my name is Dr. Edith Eva Eager. I want to thank you so much for being my listeners. I'd like to share with you my favorite four-letter words, and they are time and risk. Time, because in choosing how to spend it, we have the opportunity to decide how we want to show up for others and ourselves as well, and risk, because it's through taking risks that we grow. Hazards hurt and disempower us, that's true, but risk can also take us into discomfort where we are able to discover, not recover, discover our strength. So may this period of upheaval and uncertainty, when you may have time or risk or both, 
in abundance. Be a wake-up call, an invitation to embrace what is, to choose the life you want, and to become more congruent and, most of all, connected. For those of us spending unprecedented amounts of time alone in our own company, we can choose to keep doing the same things we're used to doing to avoid the discomfort of being with ourselves, or we can choose to know, accept, and love ourselves more fully. So please start by taking your emotional temperature, so to speak. Do you feel soft and warm or cold and stiff? You can take a temperature several times a day and observing is really the key. You don't have to change anything or do anything about it. Just notice. Be your good observer. It's a way to stop avoiding your feelings and be with what is. This is a good time to think about your thinking and to pay attention what you are paying attention to because that is what you will reinforce. If you are full of guilt and worry and fear, you're going to have more guilt and worry and fear. And remember, guilt is in a past, worry is in a future. Our freedom lies in our power to choose what we do in the present. So listen to yourself talk, your self-dialogue. Is it full of always or never? or should, or I have to? Can you find a kinder and a more gentle way to speak to yourself? Wake up in the morning, look in your mirror, and you say to yourself, I love me. Because you see, self-love is self-care. It's not narcissistic. Make sure your self-dialogue is full with yes, I am, yes, I can, yes, I will. Again, self-love is self-care. So what kind of thing you can say or do for yourself right now? And what risk can you take today? What can you do that you previously avoided? Try new kinds of things, maybe a Hungarian cuisine, or sign up with a dating uh, with someone maybe on a phone or maybe on a video, or you may choose to read something by a new author you never met or watch a film you wouldn't normally watch. When you may take a walk and you go out for some fresh air, you may want to decide that you will smile at a stranger. And even with a face mask covering our mouth, we can smile with our eyes. Turn your anxiety into excitement. Be exploring the wonderful variety of choices that we are available now. Because the more choices we have, the less we feel like a victim. And that is very important. I am not a victim. I was victimized. It's not who I am, it's what was done to me. 
Let's look at the couples and the families. They are cooped up at home, and this is a wonderful opportunity to cultivate more open communication. Sit down with each other, and you may ask something like, what now, rather than why me? And if you are a parent, just remember the mood at home is vital to our ability to thrive. And children don't do what we say, they do what we do. Children don't do what we say, they do what they see. So be a good role model to young ones by becoming a kind, loving parent to yourself. Couples, take this time out period as an opportunity to really face each other, to regroup, and most of all, to redecide. Life is so much easier when you don't have to act and get to know each other again, not to go back to her, but to have a new beginning. And you meet each other, not the image, but the real you. So tell each other what you appreciate, and you also tell what you resent. And I remember my husband was very perfectionistic, and I remember he was pushing me to be on time when we had to go to a party, and of course I didn't like that. But you know what? If I had to take a plane 5 o'clock in the morning, I knew exactly that my husband is going to be there on time. So sometimes we appreciate the same thing one time and not appreciating and resent another time. The first responders and courageous souls on the front lines, let giving of yourself and your talents be a gift. The gift to the world, certainly, but also to you. See how you good it feels to be used up. I like to be used up and share your strength and to really know your value, but there never in a million years there'll be another you. So for everyone, this is a good time to discover your inner resources, to look at life from inside out, our unique, one-of-a-kind, wonderful powers. If you leave this room, nobody can replace you. There'll never, ever be another you. I remember the last time I was in an airplane and there was a thunderstorm and I gripped the armrest through all that turbulence as the captain guided us through the thick clouds to the other side to a beautiful wide blue sky. So even the thick of the storm, the blue sky was there all along. That's why I see there are no problems, there are only challenges, there are no crises, there are only transitions. This upheaval is temporary. It is not permanent. We get through that. We are in a dark tunnel right now. Find an arrow to follow toward the good 
that can come out of now being together and let's stretch our comfort zones and move towards the light. It's All Got to Change, written and read by Philip Pullman. It's all got to change. If we come out of this crisis with all the rickety, fly-blown, worm-eaten old structures still intact, the same vain and indolent public schoolboys in charge, the same hedge fund managers stuffing their overloaded pockets with greasy fingers, our descendants will not forgive us. Nor should they. We must burn out the old corruption and establish a better way of living together. It's fitting that the Houses of Parliament are already falling down. We should begin there and tear the place down entirely to rebuild it on a better plan. All the absurd ceremony, all the pegs for hanging up your sword, all the fake drama created by deliberately not having enough seats for every member and crowding through lobbies to vote, all the contemptible pomposity that only serves to tickle the fancy of those addicted to history porn, the blazing stupidity of maintaining seats for hereditary peers, away with it. And let's reform the voting system. At the very least, let's do that without delay. It's no wonder that people feel disconnected from politics when most of us live in safe seats and might as well not vote at all. We must be able to see that our opinions are accurately reflected in the composition of our government, not completely disregarded as they are now. So it might lead to coalitions. Excellent. Discussion, compromise, working together are exactly how to run a decent country. Then we must educate our children properly. It is quite extraordinary that one school, Eton College, should have such a hold on the high places of politics. It's also extraordinary and scandalous that the magnificent facilities and opportunities that the public schools, the commercial schools, as A.H. Halsey liked to call them, offer to their pupils are not equally available to every child. The present dreary culture of mechanistic tests and meaningless league tables and invented fetishes like fronted adverbials should be swept away like filthy cobwebs. Children need light and drama and music and poetry and science and art and curiosity and libraries and plenty of grass to play on and plenty of time to run about and fool around. We should start by abolishing the tax privileges the commercial schools benefit from by pretending to be charities and pour money into the schools most children go to. Brexit. If it turns out to be true that the government, for Brexit-related reasons, refused to take part in the procurement advantage offered by EU governments, thus making it harder for the NHS to deal with the COVID-19 and placing thousands of people at risk, the entire front bench ought to resign. But of course they won't. They have not a single grain of shame. So they should be arraigned on charges of conspiracy to murder. Nothing less will do. They knew the risks and thought they'd rather appease the foaming zealots of Brexit. And now the circumstances have changed so profoundly, we must hold back on Brexit itself. There are so many clear advantages to being in the EU, and the benefits of leaving are so tenuous and fanciful, that we must revisit the referendum and hope that this time the Labour Party under a new leader will play a proper part in the argument and that the lies, the cheating, the flagrant and shameless mendacity will be fully exposed by a strong, passionate and focused campaign to remain. 
There's so much more that needs to be done, but this is how I think we should start. The way we allow ourselves to be governed at the moment looks like the triumph of habit over putrefaction. We can't go on like this. The Time of the Heart, written and read by Sue Black. Without permission or warning, genuine adversity exposes our true self and reveals with stark clarity who lies beneath our thin veneer of prosperity and persona. It's not a glimpse of who we think we are or who we want others to believe we are. It is a stark and clear reflection of unassailable truth. It demands the honesty of self, a recognition of who lives at our core, and we're measured not in our words, thoughts or public sentiments, but through our actions and deeds. It's no accident that the most memorable recruitment poster for World War I was that released in 1915, showing a little girl sitting on her father's knee asking, Daddy, what did you do in the Great War? The innocence of a question from a child to challenge the actions of an adult. Yes, it played on guilt, but it also confronted the question of self-worth and challenged the latent potential in us all that may lie dormant until cold, or perhaps shamed into action, no matter which. So what did you do in 2020 when adversity came calling in the form of an unpredictable microscopic virus? Perhaps you hunkered down in full siege mentality and hauled up the proverbial drawbridge to wait it out. Were you safe in the knowledge that you'd stockpiled sufficient toilet paper and bags of flour to see you through the next decade? Because it's not your job to worry about others as long as you and yours are okay. Maybe you sharpened your elbows and you remonstrated with those who didn't meet your standards and interpretation of the law. Did you then become that ugly and judgmental societal police force of one who reveled in the sanctimony of pointing out the failings of others? These types may have got the media headlines, but they were a minority of selfish fools. Maybe through age or infirmity you had no choice but to lock away for months, a worrying and frightening time. Who looked out for you? Maybe it was family or friend. But perhaps you've been surprised and humbled by the kindness of strangers, looking only to help and asking nothing in return. These are the heroes of adversity, who blossom just at the perfect time when we need them the most. They are the brave and the bold who volunteer to help people they don't know and go above and beyond expectations for no reward other than the knowledge that they've ensured you're not lonely, scared or hungry. They deliver an unexpected Easter egg. They walk your dog. They drop food on your doorstep. They call just to say hello and make sure you're okay. They are the bright beacons of what humanity can achieve when adversity comes calling. No great big bold public gestures, but small, meaningful and genuine acts of the human heart. People putting themselves out on a limb to protect, care and share. In times of adversity, they become the needles of society who weave together the disparate threads of community into a gloriously vibrant patchwork of humanity's art of the possible. They provide the hope we need that tomorrow's society can be different. It can be patient, 
forgiving without judgment, caring without return, grateful and honest without reward. They have proved it and we owe them a debt of gratitude. There is no greater opportunity to press the reset button for life than when adversity becomes an uninvited guest in our own home. Let's not squander this harsh lesson and return to the old ways, because this is the time of the heart. We have only one life, and it is a short one, so it should be one that counts. Enlightenment for a Time of Benightedness Written and read by A.C. Grayling Everyone knows that it's vastly easier to counsel fortitude than to exemplify it. But what was the counsel that made some of the sterling figures of Roman antiquity so sterling? The answer is Stoicism. The two greatest figures of late Stoicism were, respectively, an emperor and a slave, Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus. They share the top table of their outlook with Seneca, Cato the Younger and Gaius Rufus. We have Seneca's writing still. None of the works of Rufus survive, but his influence does. And though Cato didn't write, his manner of life served as a model for others of his time. The essence of the Stoic outlook is this. As regards what you cannot influence, earthquakes, tsunamis, ageing, you must face it with courage. As regards what you can influence, your fears, appetites, desires, you must seek self-mastery. To live with courage towards the outer and self-mastery over the inner is to live, said the Stoics, nobly. This view is filtered down to us in the form of being philosophical about something. I like to illustrate this by recounting the story of the old lady heard saying to her friend, My dear, you must be philosophical about this. Don't give it another thought. Seneca had eight increasingly difficult years as one of Nero's chief advisers, twice trying to retire from service as this notorious emperor's reign diverged more and more from its early promise of legal and orderly rule, a promise made in Nero's accession speech, which Seneca wrote. Nero refused to let him go. Eventually, Seneca was caught up in the Pisonian plot to assassinate the emperor, and Nero ordered him to commit suicide. He complied. Although controversially entangled in the political infighting of the Nero period, Seneca made time to write both philosophical works, mainly in the form of letters, and dramatic works for the theatre. His writings are accessible, graceful, and full of wisdom. The chief of them, from the point of view of their Stoic teaching, is his Letters to Lucilius. In these, and in his consolatory writings and reflections on the respective merits of an active versus a contemplative life, he argues as follows. We shouldn't see practice and theory as disjoint, nor therefore the active and contemplative lives as opposed, but instead see that they compose a single whole, each aspect contributing to the good we can achieve. We're all citizens of the world, cosmopolitans, and we are all connected through the two greatest gifts we have, reason and our natural inclination to friendship, we can benefit each other and foster sentiments of clemency and mutual understanding. We must seek self-knowledge and must reflect on what is truly good in human life so that we could work with others to promote it. 
By self-examination, we can educate our emotions appropriately to achieve the character of fortitude and self-mastery that distinguishes Stoic wisdom. And in the process, we can distinguish what is of value, such as health, wealth and love, from what is good in itself, namely the Stoic life, which we can live even if we lose or don't have the things we value. Seneca is credited with being among the first to develop ideas about introspection and the will that proved influential among later thinkers such as St Augustine. He was realistic enough to acknowledge that the endeavour to live according to the Stoic conception of a good life is a counsel of perfection. But like others before and after him, he extolled the effort itself as a major part of what it is to live such a life. Even in times that are more than usually challenging, there are opportunities to reflect on what matters, on genuinely worthwhile goals, on valued relationships, and on who and what we personally are. The Stoic principles of being courageous and mastering oneself are helpful in this. The real trick is to continue to abide by these principles when the bad times end and the quick-acting human propensity to forget and relapse kicks in. Which suggests a thought that Stoicism might be even more necessary then, when the bad times are over, than during them. What We Learn From Death Written and read by Julia Samuel I have always believed that we shouldn't avoid thinking about death, that we should examine it as much as we do other aspects of life, but I have rarely succeeded in getting others to share my view. Now, however, COVID-19 has done it for me. It has blown away our collective denial that death happens to other people and our magical thinking that even thinking about death might make it happen, so best avoid it. It has brought our mortality up close and personal. This is frightening, yes, but also enriching. It heightens our humility and we value the preciousness of love and life itself. A 72-year-old client who was hospitalised with COVID-19 told me, I didn't really think I was going to die, but there were moments I wondered if I could keep fighting. Just breathing was such a struggle. But I thought of all the people I love and turned to hope. Now I treasure every day. I love just being in the garden. As Ralph Waldo Emerson said, the first wealth is health. Health is invisible until we are ill. And I have heard more often than ever before how grateful people feel for being safe at home, for being able to hug their family, and how they value and miss their friends. Being safe is no longer an assumption we take for granted. It is a blessing, and now we give it the respect it's due. Before the pandemic, busyness was an epidemic, and we'd self-importantly declare we had back-to-back meetings and hadn't had a moment to ourselves. But lockdown has altered time. For most of us, it has slowed. Busyness is an anaesthetic that blocks feeling that allows us to avoid painful truths. It takes time to allow ourselves to open up emotionally, 
to let our awareness of what is going on inside us emerge. Time out has given us the opportunity to know ourselves rather than distract ourselves and ask important questions about who we really are, what we believe and what gives our life meaning. This may mean we value more all that we had before or give us insights into possible new ways of being and living. We all hope that we can make a different world when we come out the other side. I, like most people, would like a world that is more equitable, where community, connection and humanity trump individualism and greed. It will, I hope, mean that we remember that when we feel powerless, helping others is the best antidote. Small kindnesses like dropping food for a neighbour matters and leaves you both feeling better. Seeing Captain Tom walking round his garden and raising 29 million reminds us that one person can change the world. The crises of 9-11 and 2008 brought a collective promise to deliver a kinder, gentler world, which did not materialise. It is a profoundly complex promise to achieve, for there is a battle between our evolutionary drive, the survival of the fittest, and our biologically wired altruism the pull to save oneself, over the need to belong and protect our tribe. Change tests our beliefs and values and requires the courage to make a decision and then follow it with action and endurance to see it through. But in order to make informed, good decisions, we need to face up to the losses, to learn from them and confront the truths they reveal. Although our future is unknown, our past experience always informs and influences us. As my client said, I folded a lot of my past pain into my heart. We never lose what we have lived through, but when faced, it can be a source of potency and growth. It calls on both leadership and the commitment of every one of us to deliver that growth. It is harder than we would like and takes longer than we would choose, but it is possible. For altruism to win, we need to ignite hope. Hope is the alchemy that turns a life, community, world around. Hope is not just an emotion, although emotion supports it. Hope is a path to construct a way forward and it needs three elements. The capacity to set realistic goals, the ability to work out how to achieve them, including the adaptability for a backup plan, and finally, self-belief. When any one of us looks back at our life, what has mattered to us most is our love and connection to others. In addition now, we will look at it through the lens of before and post the pandemic. And we will want to be proud of our contribution, however small, to a better world. A Year of Change, written and read by Jojo Moyes. 
I was lying on the grass talking to a friend who I hadn't spoken to in the four, five weeks since lockdown. Do you remember telling me you just wanted the world to slow down for a bit, she said. What did you do? I laughed. In truth, I'd been so busy I don't even remember the conversation. That has been my life for ten years. I flew so much I knew the layout of every hub airport from here to Houston. My diary used to give me ulcers. I could count my weekends off in any one year on one hand. Maybe that sounds boastful. It isn't meant to. I loved my job, I rationalised, so it wasn't workaholism. Until a series of personal crises and my workload caught up with me last year, forcing me finally to take time out. I negotiated a year off from writing, planned non-work trips and adventures in what I thought of as my year of change. I reclaimed a social life, had lunches and dinners, which were lovely, but they were mostly people in my industry. And four months in, somehow, my days were still full. Family, admin, that curse of modern life, promotional leftovers, scripts that needed reworking. When I found myself making notes one afternoon, I realised I was already halfway back into the world of work. Maybe, I thought, that's just who I was. And then COVID happened, and the world stopped. For the first two weeks, like many, I became almost manic. I had a panic attack when lockdown was announced. I planned escape routes, called my friends incessantly. How was I meant to cope without them? I grieved the plans I had made, the life-changing trips I had lost, and then told myself to get a grip. I would simply use my time constructively, catch up on everything, sort the office, organise my accounts, maybe even write something about it. But... Like many writers, my brain refused to comply. I couldn't focus. I couldn't sleep or nodded off at odd times in the day. My emotions sat on the surface of everything, bringing joy or tears at inappropriate moments. I stopped calling all but a handful of close friends. How many times can you say, isn't it weird? Are you okay? Anyway. People I knew and loved fell ill. None, yet, thankfully bad enough to require hospitalisation, but enough for it to register. This is huge, and it demands respect. I stopped counting days or thinking about after. I gave in to the new groundhog rhythms of the day, its housework, dog walks and mugs of tea. And now, five weeks in, I find myself slowed almost to a standstill. I lie in the grass with the dogs. I'm lucky enough to have a garden. I cook with thought and love. I speak to my tiny handful of people every day and at length. I put my head out of the bedroom window at midnight and marvel at the stillness of the dark, the distant calls of a lovelorn frog, the rustling of birds in bushes. I shop slowly too, from local farm shops, suppliers who have lost restaurant trade and need help. We've eaten new and delicious things. I queue patiently, exchange pleasantries with two-metre-distanced neighbours. I trade emails with writer friends abroad and we compare our experiences and express love. I spend little time on social media aside to admire the good dogs and beautiful landscapes of Instagram. I watch romantic comedies at night and mostly shield myself from news. There is too much of everything, but we can choose how much to absorb. It's human nature to try and find the silver linings, and here are mine. My pulse has slowed. I've learned a little meditation. I'm bad at it, but there are lessons that have been useful. Live in the moment. There is no such thing as never or always. Breathe. An inveterate planner, I now don't look beyond the half day. I'm grateful to be here. 
My children are safe and have food in their bellies. I still speak to those I love and I'm grateful for the technology that allows it. I think about the bravery of those on the front line of this virus and I'm grateful to them too. Anxious for them and grateful. I don't know what will happen when this is over. I don't think about it. Not because I don't care, but because how can any of us begin to know? I hope I can hold some of the things I've learned to savour, the greatest of which has been time spent doing little. To lose your life is to lose time, all of it. To still be here, noodling through it, wasting it, sitting on the grass with a dog at your feet is, I now understand, the greatest of privileges. Sometimes just being is enough. Turns out this has been a year of change after all. The Reminders, written and read by David Quammen. The most surprising thing about COVID-19 is how unprepared for it we have been. Unprepared for an event that was so predictable and predicted. The least surprising aspects are that a new virus has emerged from a non-human animal, almost certainly a bat, and infected humans. That this new virus belongs to the coronavirus family, a group of microbes well-known for their capacity to evolve and adapt and cause lethal human disease, and that many of the first victims may have contracted their infections in a wet market where wild animals, captured and caged, were on sale as food amid a perilous jamboree of domestic animals, meat, seafood, and other edible products. All of that, foreseen as likelihoods and articulated as severe dangers by virus researchers 10 years ago and more. Science knew this would happen. Scientists issued warnings. Politics didn't care. Politicians made decisions against robust programs of pandemic preparedness. Why? Because robust programs are expensive, both in money and in political capital. They cost billions. Of course, billions is trivial compared to the losses, even just the financial losses, brought by COVID-19. But there was risk in spending such money, and the political capital needed to marshal it in defense against a pandemic that would happen eventually, but might not happen before the next election. And politicians chose to avoid such risk. We humans, we 7.7 billion, are the most abundant population of large-bodied animal on Earth. We are almost certainly the most abundant population of large-bodied animal that has ever lived on Earth. As the fossil record shows, by absence of evidence of any other such singular dominating presence. We are also the smartest animal on Earth, whether smartness is measured in the ability to irrigate resources and transform environment, or in the ability to produce iambic pentameter and digital software and Gregorian chant. Yet we are still just mammals, not gods. This is one of the great truths that Charles Darwin gave us, probably the darkest and most unsettling of his truths. We are part of nature, not separate, not above. We are connected to other mammals in many ways, one of which is by sharing viruses. COVID-19 is a forceful reminder of that. If we're as wise as we are smart, we will embrace the reminder and 
once this travail has abated, begin seriously to act on its lessons. If we do, there will be glorious opportunities for humanity to redesign our societies better to live in balance with nature. If we don't, there will be more reminders. As bad as this pandemic may be, no one should presume it's the last. Eating Cherries in the Park, written and read by Deborah Levy. As I write this, in the midst of the pandemic in April 2020, my concentration is shattered. The sun is shining in London, birdsong is louder, the air is cleaner. I have enough food and the love of many people. Yet my focus is not even 50%. In this regard, I don't believe I am alone, nor do I consider lack of attention and focus a small matter. We rely on the alert attention of our ambulance drivers, our health workers and our scientists. I am also grateful to those teachers, artists, writers, composers and philosophers who gave their best attention to the ideas that have made my life more interesting. I am aware that the coronavirus is often compared to fighting a war. People are dying, our mortality is threatened, borders are closed. We are not free to travel, we are unable to work, our children are missing school. If this is like war, it is no way to live. Perhaps we are now better equipped to understand that people fighting and fleeing wars are shattered in every way. Yet, the mainstream populist narrative for millions of distressed people fleeing from war zones was hostile in the extreme. Many of the right-wing political leaders who were complicit with this populism are now tasked with looking after our collective well-being and survival. We are in the care of men and a few of their female consorts who are ideologically opposed to this kind of caring and much more skilled at the politics of hostility. What's the point of being skilled at hostility? We have to change the way we coexist with each other. At the same time, we have to change the way we coexist with animals. Stressed animals pass virus to each other. They breathe, shit, scream and bleed together, whether in cages or wildlife markets or in the hell of industrial farming systems and they pass virus on to humans. The boundaries between humans and animals have been shamefully transgressed. There was already an emergency before the emergency. There was already a lack of attention before our attention was shattered. If we don't want to better understand the ways in which pandemics are linked to climate change and loss of biodiversity... We will have to give up our lives for the current global male authoritarian passion for ignorance. In the words of the great writer and activist Grace Paley, we are in the hands of men whose power and wealth have separated them from the reality of daily life and from the imagination. We are right to be afraid.
I believe our main project is to educate ourselves out of this ignorance. When the pandemic is over and we can shout in the streets again, it would be hopeful if men everywhere were to organize a global, male-only demonstration against domestic violence, which has been rampant during lockdown. The challenge would be to give his attention to finding ways to present the idea that it is unmanly to attack women in their homes or anywhere else for that matter. This is connected to the ways in which it is also unmanly to attack the planet and the habitats and bodies of animals or to believe that caring for others is a feminine preoccupation. After all, women have had to give their attention to these matters for most of our lives. We would have much preferred to eat cherries in the park. Evenly Distributed, written and read by Seth Godin. For the first time, the only time, everyone on Earth was in the same boat at the same time. Sure, there have been events that struck us all at once. Landing on the moon caused us all to gasp simultaneously. But this time was different. Regardless of class or age or nationality, the situation was right there in front of our face. And it didn't go away in a few news cycles. But the responses, of course, were not the same. Some profiteered and hoarded cutting the line and seeking a profit, regardless of the cost to others. Some embraced panic, while others sought to fan it. Some showed up asking for help, while others decided to see who needed help. And that's the first lesson of our pandemic. While events might be evenly distributed, responses and reactions rarely are. We are able to choose to see possibility. We are able to lead. We're able to see beyond a day or a week into the future. Not simply a few of us. Any of us. That choice wasn't dictated by class or station or race. It was a new decision made each day by people who chose to care. Volunteer firemen who showed up for the next alarm. Parents who sat with a kid instead of parking them in front of a device. Doctors who quieted their fears in order to save others. This leads to the second lesson, which is the choice that is in front of each of us. Just as the pandemic created the opportunity to lead and to contribute, the future is knocking on our doors, asking us to make a new decision. We learn the hard way that our fragile industrial ecosystem isn't quite as resilient as we hoped. We discovered that we aren't actually as insulated from nature and each other as we might have expected, and we learned, perhaps, that compared to the alternative, preparation is quite cheap. There will be other flu pandemics, and each time, if history is a guide, we'll be better at fighting them. But fighting a virus is very different than fighting the weather. The weather, the inexorable rise of the sea, is going to get harder and harder to ignore. The effects are unevenly distributed now, often exposing the most vulnerable. But as we saw with the global pandemic, we won't be able to buy ourselves peace of mind 
for long. The fork in the road is plain to see. Who will lead? Who will see possibility and opportunity and decide to show up now when we can to do something about tomorrow? And who will decide to push to go back to business as usual? Just as air travel and cruise ships spread the virus, our industrial might has planted the seeds of our destruction. At the same time, the modern world has created a system with enough leverage to save itself. While the system has leverage, the system is not resilient, and the system doesn't lead itself. The best time to begin is now. Start where you are. Don't wait for authority or a manual. Change will come, as it always does, from us, each of us, if we care enough to lead. To be learned, to be remembered. Written and read by A.L. Kennedy. Like all terrible times, the C-19 crisis is educational, not just devastating. The truth is always true. Less challenging realities allow us to compromise on how much truth we accept, but this distorts our position in reality and leaves us vulnerable when the testing times come, as they always will. Kindness was never weakness. Foolishness was never fun. Cruelty was never strength or a sign of health. Lies were never anything other than dangerous. Knowledge was always power. Education was always meant to help us. Unity and cooperation were always precious. Hatred and division were always an unaffordable luxury. Hope was always necessary. Being mistaken was always reversible. Malignant narcissism was never an outlook that would heal, build or sustain. We have been burned back to first principles and allowed a period of fundamental insight. Whatever we do next has to be based on truth, unity, kindness and flexibility. The preservation and enrichment of human life should always have been the goal against which we judged and measured every action, thought and plan. No one is disposable. Everyone is necessary. When we abandoned that as an idea central to our society, we guaranteed our own downfall. This is reversible, but won't be for long. For years, much of our public discourse has been about learned helplessness, despair, displaced rage and fundamental fear. None of that is useful to us and better narratives are already available. Those of us who are not suffering can learn most from those who are suffering most and must help them most. This has always been true and has always been imperative. For decades, the status quo has steered us towards sociopathic behaviors and this has allowed sociopaths to become elevated in all areas of our public life. This has always gone against natural, healthy human behavior and has endangered us all. Oversight needs to be set in place to ensure everyone's safety. From human rights law, to control of corporate behavior, to good governance of financial systems and reforms of local and national government. Corruption isn't just morally repugnant, it ruins lives. 
The higher the level at which corruption operates, the more of us it will kill. For decades, we have been trained to accept the idea that those who govern us can represent themselves as being against government so that they can gather as much power as possible while shedding all the responsibilities of government. That narrative has to be challenged at every turn. It leads to unsustainable systemic failures. Public service and public servants need to be admired and rewarded at all levels Delivery drivers, nurses, care workers, shelf stackers, council leaders, bin collectors, MPs. They are all meant to provide essential services and should be adequately rewarded and subject to oversight. In these past weeks, we have been able to appreciate what actually sustains us. Natural beauty, created beauty, health, compassion, human contact and communal action for the greater good. Our future has to safeguard all these elements of a full life. We have to protect our environment and prepare for the continuing multiple impacts of climate change that will involve national and international action. We have to protect the rule of law in every area of private and public life. We have to make sure that our health and social care sectors are working to sustain those in temporary and ongoing need, rather than working to punish and remove our weakest. The state has to stop acting to waste lives and begin supporting them. Arts activity, something which enriches and sustains us, which gives voices to the marginalized and which encourages empathy, needs to be supported both as a useful source of employment and one key element in a healthy society. We urgently need to examine our use of language. Precise use of simple language has always helped us. In our education systems, our journalism, our care systems, and our local and national government, the principles of accuracy, clarity, utility, and beauty of expression should always be applied. We need to be supported in communicating our needs, our laws, our access to assistance, our communities and ourselves. Falsehoods flourish in environments of habitually blurred language. We have already taken huge actions in unity across nations. We have seen failures in good governance anywhere threaten us all. We have seen demagogues and dictators cannot respond to challenge in positive ways. We know how small the world is. We have seen our common humanity and the extraordinary strength, courage and beauty of ordinary human beings. We can build the world we deserve before we forget the truth again and begin to fail each other. As climate change progresses, we have to accept that our next educational experience may crush us absolutely. We must work to avoid that. Consider the pencil, written and read by Lewis Dartnell. In 1958, the economist Leonard Reed published an article called I, Pencil. I came across this essay whilst researching for my previous book, and I've not been able to stop thinking about it ever since. 
While it may sound like a new stylus for the latest iPad, the article is a dialogue written from the point of view of a pencil, discussing its family tree of how it's made. Just a normal pencil, the simplest tool or implement we are ever likely to use or interact with in our everyday lives. The resounding realization from the essay is that even considering this simplicity of form. There isn't a single person on the planet who actually knows how to make a pencil. No, one person, because the means of production in the industrialized world are distributed. The wood for the outer sheath of the pencil is sourced from a cedar tree growing in a forest in northern California. Say, this lumber must be dried in a kiln, machined in a mill, and then glued together. The Inner core of graphite is quarried from perhaps Sri Lanka. The eraser stuck on the end is composed of rubber from Indonesia, and the metal casing smelted and forged someplace else. Each of these raw materials needs to be processed and refined and shaped before finally all being brought together in a factory to produce just this simple pencil. And behind all of that. Are the organizational systems required for transporting everything around, generating electricity, building and maintaining the power plants, and so on? That single pencil is just the tip of an iceberg of supporting infrastructure. Its vast bulk lying invisibly behind the scenes of the modern world. It takes a village to raise a child, and a whole world to make a pencil. That was true in 1958. And the process of globalization since then has knitted together the world's means for making things ever more intricately, from electronic gadgets to vital medical equipment. The international disruption of the coronavirus has suddenly shone a glaring spotlight on this earth-spanning network of manufacture and distribution. We take a huge amount for granted in our everyday lives. Without ever needing to pause and ponder where everything has actually come from, how was it made? How far does the supply chain reach around the world? That is until, of course, certain items stop just magically appearing on the supermarket shelves. As an individual, how much do any of us actually know how to make and do for ourselves? My personal obsession with all of this derives from the research and writing of my previous science book, *The Knowledge: How to Rebuild Our World from Scratch*. But it's not just me who's become engrossed with such back-to-first principles exploration. If the enormous popularity of YouTube channels like *Primitive Technology* or *How to Make Everything* or anything to go by. Huge numbers of others are too. During the current lockdown, the difficulty in popping out to the shops or securing a covered delivery slot for online supermarkets, or perhaps just that many of us simply have more time on our hands to fill, has unlocked an inner resourcefulness in many. This might be picking up a new creative hobby. Or trying some other crafts or maker projects whilst homeschooling the children, or taking to grow some fruit and veg in the back garden. In particular, 
there's also been a huge surge of interest in the miraculous alchemy of baking, of how to take just a few really basic materials, flour, water and some yeast, and transform them with the heat of an oven into a delicious loaf. The circumstances of lockdown have induced many of us to try our hand at making and doing things from scratch for ourselves, to reconnect with these processes that have become hidden in the modern world, and to realise just how satisfying and fulfilling even small projects like these are. So my hope is that on a simple, individual level, one small positive outcome of this virus and the mirror it thrust up to our society is that when we're able to return to our normal, pre-pandemic lives and the high street reopens, we'll retain this appreciation of all that is going on behind the scenes of the modern world to support and provide for us. Making Peace with Time, written and read by Lucy Hawking. In the absolute night silence of COVID-19 London, I stopped to listen to the beating of my heart. There were no planes overhead, no buses, nor cars, no one talking nor shouting in the street outside, just an infinite quiet, broken only by the thub-thub of my own chest. For a moment, I was doing nothing. I wasn't elated or thoughtful or anxious or unhappy. I wasn't anything. I just existed. If I'd been on fast-forward my whole life, now suddenly, I was on pause. I've always been desperately anxious about time. I feel I've had one eye on the cascading sand timer my whole life. I grew up with a father with motor neuron disease. And I remember from very early on being aware with horrible clarity that he might die any minute. Of course, he thankfully went on to live for many decades more. But we didn't know that. And so we lived on a very different basis, of the only time being now. Time seemed like an unfeasibly precious resource, as though it were a rare mineral only mined in teeny quantities on the moon. While this attitude has many upsides, it also makes a tyrant out of time. Filling the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds of blistering activity on a ceaseless basis really does leech the joy out of life sometimes. It's like living with a ticking metronome. Only when I am completely lost in a book does time stop for me. Until now, that is. The very simple phrase, take your time, suddenly has meaning for me. I've taken my time to do all sorts of things with variable, life-affirming results. I've baked loaves of bread dense enough to build a wall. I gave my son a fairly decent haircut and then, with a rush of enthusiasm, moved on to the dog who ended up with a mullet and now seems puzzled when I look at her and burst out laughing. I've worked as a volunteer on a COVID-19 project with a group of utterly brilliant and dedicated experts in their fields with wicked senses of humour. I've had long chats with friends and family. My favourite was about a mouse in Paris who likes to eat meringue crumbs. I even thought of writing a story about the mouse who is sharing a friend's lockdown. 
until it got quarantine fever, attacked a cheese plant and we decided we didn't like it anymore. I'm helping my son, who has autism, to complete his college course and enjoying it enormously. We are doing Pilates together. Time has finally become my friend. I think we all want to believe we will be able to carry over the lessons we learned from COVID-19 into life beyond. I am not so sure. Maybe I will backslide into bad old habits the moment I'm given the chance. But I hope that something will linger. I've loved the expression of community identity, how people in my local area have come together. I'd like to see that live on, that we care for and look after those around us and value community over status and naked profit. I've revelled in the clean air, the surprisingly clear water of the nearby River Thames, the spring flowers, birdsong and the quiet skies. It feels like the renaissance of nature itself, as though the planet is starting to heal. I'm deeply encouraged that there is a flight-to-quality effect on the public, embracing science rather than trusting misleading, unsubstantiated opinions such as conspiracy theories or heavily biased polemics. So a cleaner, quieter, more supportive, more rational planet is what I hope we have once COVID-19 is over. Presuming, that is, we are lucky enough to have the prospect of a future ahead of us. That in itself, looks like the greatest luxury, a future and a heart which still beats. We Cannot Do This Alone, written and read by Simon Sinek. Crisis is the great revealer. As the pandemic swept across our planet, we saw how some of our leaders reacted swiftly while others waited too long to the detriment of their own populations. So too has there been a great revealing in every one of us. Some have found an ability to deal with stress that they didn't know they had. Others tapped into new leadership capabilities to help keep their teammates' spirits up. Some also discovered they are not as disciplined as they would like to believe. I still don't have that quarantine body I imagined I'd have. Many of us also learned more about our ability to ask for help and our ability to receive it. And though each of us reacted differently to the circumstances we all face, there is one thing that was revealed to all of us. We cannot do this alone. Human beings are social animals, and our ability to survive as a species depends on our ability to cooperate. It's in our DNA. When a natural disaster, like an earthquake or a hurricane, destroys a town or city, we see people come together in common cause. All the things we bicker about and debate the rest of the time seem to just disappear. It is during these times that political leanings fall away and we become one. We rush to help those in need, regardless of who they are. And during these COVID times, the same truth has yet again been revealed. We have to work together. At a macro level, we have learned that only if we work together will we protect our health systems and those who work in them. And at a micro level, we have learned the importance of checking in on our family and friends to see how they're doing and the value when someone calls to check in on us. We have learned that a phone call is better than a text to feel connected to another human being and for them to feel connected to us. 
And as good as today's video calling technologies are, nothing really compares to being there with each other. Many families living in quarantine are having family dinner together every single night. For the first time in a long time, we are slowing down, we are talking again, and we are thinking about each other. There are things that I hope remain when life returns to the new abnormal. I hope we remember the value of calling someone and preserving family dinner at least once a week. I hope we remember the value of space, the time we get to spend doing things for ourselves, or time we spend with our friends without interruption of any bings, buzzes, or beeps. Though this period has been filled with tragedy, we can come out of this better versions of ourselves than we went in. We can emerge more human, and that can only be a good thing. Silver Linings, written and read by Scarlett Curtis. We've been here before, haven't we? That was the phrase spinning around my head as the world went on lockdown and millions of people embarked on a mission to stay at home. I have been here before. I got sick when I was 14 and spent the next six years sheltering in place, only leaving the house for the occasional doctor's appointment or walk around my block. No one knows what to say to a child who is sick. You can't ask them what they've been up to lately because the answer is nothing. You can't chat about the weather because they haven't left the house. In lieu of conversation starters, people tend to give things to sick children. They give you cake, frozen meals, Haribo and sewing kits. More than anything, they give you silver linings. Human beings possess a deep need to find silver linings, and we search for them even in the darkest of places. We want those who are suffering to learn from their suffering and to come out the other side with wisdom we can all learn from and utterings of, if I had my time again, I wouldn't change a thing. As the years of my illness dragged on, the silver linings thrust upon me grew more and more extreme. I was told that the pain would make me stronger, that the years of torture would make me invincible. I was told that it would make me kinder, that all this suffering would give me a perspective on the world that few others possessed. I was told that it would make me happier, that the knowledge of this darkness would make the lightness even brighter. I was told to be grateful, that things could be worse. I was told to have no regrets. After six years of illness, I began to emerge back into the real world, and I waited intense anticipation for my silver linings to appear. I had been promised strength, empathy, resolve, and Mother Teresa-like healing qualities. As the pain in my body finally started to heal, I keenly prepared for the arrival of my well-earned moral virtues. I was promised silver linings, and the silver linings never arrived. In fact, the more time I spent having them put upon me, the more I began to realise that the purpose that they served was to comfort those who gave them out. People aren't very good at looking pain and suffering in the eye. We dance around its edges, blurring its impact with heartwarming tales. We shower darkness with metallic paint in the hope that its silver edges might just shine through. We run around in circles, exhausting ourselves just to stop ourselves from ever sitting down with the bad bits of life and talking to them directly. We're going through a bad bit right now. 
a way of life I feel all too familiar with, except this time I'm not alone. There is a collective cry across the globe for silver linings. We are searching in the dark for an upside. Perhaps this is the time to finish knitting that jumper, to write some poetry, to read War and Peace, banana bread? We're all longing to make this mean something, but looking back, my pain didn't really mean anything. My pain didn't make me who I am today, but surviving it did. Getting sick and staying sick was the worst thing that ever happened to me and my family. When that magic hypothetical fairy comes to visit and gives me the option of going back and erasing it from history, I'll take it. No one needs to go through what I went through, and despite popular opinion that everything happens for a reason, I don't believe there is a reason when a child is sick or when a human is suffering. This would be a very bad essay if I ended it here, so I shall give you this. I shall give you this one tiny life lesson. What I learnt from my pain is that there are no silver linings. I learnt that the only way to deal with suffering is to look at it directly and diminish its power by the sheer force and will of the light that is inside you. The pain doesn't teach you anything, but you teach the pain. You teach the pain that it will not destroy you. You teach the world that a soul cannot be crushed by suffering, no matter how much it might feel like it at the time. What this moment in history is revealing about us is what those of us who've suffered have known for a long time. The true silver lining of any kind of darkness is the fact that you survive it. What we will learn is that we can get through hard things and emerge on the other side, bruised and battered but not fully broken. And next time someone is suffering, the next time the world turns black, we will hold their hand and we will sit in the darkness and we will not let go until the lights finally come back on. The Unwelcome Teacher, written and read by Gabor Mate. Unless you are blessed or cursed with prophetic vision, you will not know any more than most of us do, what the ultimate meaning of this pandemic may be. For that, we will need the benefit of retrospection at some yet unforeseeable time. At present, in relative or absolute isolation, we navigate our uncertain way through the avalanche of news reports, the sober entreaties of health authorities, the flailing about of politicians, the legitimate doubts of thoughtful critics, and the phantasmagoric imaginings of conspiracy theorists. And we wait for the future to unfold and reveal its lessons, for we do sense that in a crisis so global and so vast, there must be some teaching. I believe abiding through uncertainty is the most immediate wisdom the virus is bestowing upon us. Still, now is a good moment to pose some questions if not about the future, then about the past and present. The pandemic may be leading us to some as yet undefinable new normal, but it is already revealing to us realities about us as individuals and no less about ourselves as a society. In a sense, it is acting like a truth serum, as an agent dissolving the gloss that in ordinary days obscures the verities we may not be willing to encounter closely. We are all losing something, a sense of security 
that even if illusory at the best of times, we all cling to a sense of normalcy, which no matter how precarious, holds us in a world that appears familiar in which we feel we know how to be a sense of ourselves. It may be shock for many of us to discover that even in the richest societies the world has known, economic security and physical well-being are so precarious for so many that a threat can so rapidly arise to menace ways of living and being we had taken for granted. We may also be asking ourselves just how essential some of our ordinary concerns have been. As much as we enjoy football, for example, just how important is it whether or not Liverpool finally clinches the Premier League title this year? On the individual level, some of us have now an enforced opportunity to consider how much of our self-concept is bound up in what we do out there in the world, with the activities we engage in, with the acceptance other people offer us. If not all that, then who am I? becomes an almost inescapable question. The answer may not be immediately comfortable. Unsurprisingly, alongside many inspiring local and transnational examples of empathy, compassion, and mutual support, fault lines in personal psyches, communities, and family systems are also being exposed. The rate of addiction has risen under the stress of the pandemic, as has the number of cases of domestic abuse and mental illness. In the social sphere, the questions that arise are equally disturbing. In Britain, the first 10 physicians to die of COVID-19 were all in the BAME, B-A-M-E category, that is, Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic. Pure happenstance? Not likely. Given that internationally, it is the most stressed and marginalized citizens are also at the greatest risk. In the US, as in the UK, minority populations are succumbing in disproportionate numbers. And what of our regard for the elderly and our respect for those people who look after them, often, again, of immigrant and minority backgrounds? Internationally, elder care is manifesting itself as a scandal, neglected seniors, undervalued, stressed, and underpaid caregivers. Most disturbing about such facts is that they're not new. They reflect patterns of inequality and moral indifference that have been with us for a long time. Patterns we have not, as societies, deemed essential to address. The virus has not caused them. It has only robbed us of the luxury of denial. Unwelcome as a teacher it may be, the pandemic offers lessons we ignore at our peril, personal and social. There we hope we're up for the learning. Time to Stand and Stare, written and read by Michael Morpergo. I'm in an open prison. I've been inside for five weeks now. My fellow inmate, only one of them, is a good enough companion, easy to be with. We get on well enough, well we should, after 57 years. We look out into a garden where tulips grow, where a pheasant struts his stuff outside our window, where pied wagtails run about wagging their tails and swallows swoop over the roof and down into their nest in the garage, and a blackbird sings to me, and I sing back. I watch him for hours, because I've got time. 
time to stand and stare, as the poem goes. And we are allowed out of the gates once a day for half an hour for a walk. It's against the rules if you meet someone to stand and talk, but there aren't many people about anyway. Sheep, cows, deer springing away into the wood, fish rising in the river, the river where Tarka the otter fished, where poets and writers walked, a publisher once too, who had a notion to call his books penguins or puffins. As we walk, we can talk about them all, and about the heron and the otter tracks we've just seen, we think. So we do, often. No one else to talk to, except one another, and we've said it all before. But that's all right. Doesn't stop us saying it again. We talk memories, mostly. Argue about dates and chronology. Stop to look at early purple orchids and primroses and watch the bumblebees in the sunshine. And look for the buzzards up in the blazing blue. But it's too bright to see them. We know they're up there, wheeling about somewhere. They're mewing at us, or maybe at one another. We try not to talk about the virus with the funny name, because it's not funny, and because you might miss the kingfisher flashing by or be distracted from the scent of the bluebells in the wood. It's all too easy to be distracted by this virus. It's too overwhelmingly universal to talk about, too widespread and too threatening to contemplate, too catastrophic in its consequences. And now, just recently, too personal. The personal we do talk about. A man we've known in the town has died of this virus. He kept the fish and chip shop, was a firefighter, a good citizen, a friend. A dear cousin was taken into hospital in Sheffield a fortnight ago. It was touch and go for her. But she survived. My best friend at university is going through the illness in hospital as I write this. We think of her, talk of her. Hope for her. And we, being old, we never knew we were until now, are cared for by neighbours who were neighbours but who have become friends, good, kind friends. We are spoilt rotten by kindness and by great good fortune, camaraderie, solidarity, community, the three great benefits of the virus. Others are not as lucky as we are. As we wander the fields back home, we think of the children who would be here, should be here, but for this virus. And this is personal, too. There should be 35 children from a primary school in London walking these fields, as we are, checking the lambing sheep, going to feed cows and calves with the farmer. They should be playing out in their field this evening before bedtime, or standing and staring at distant Dartmoor before coming in for a story by the fire. But they can't be here because Farms for City Children, our 45-year-old charity, with its three working farms, which have become countryside homes for a week for over a 100,000 city children, has had to close down. We saw the last children walking away down the lane over a month ago now. That's why this virus is personal. It's driven them away. It's keeping them away. For now... Somehow, the charity and its supporters will get together and bring them back. We did it before, when foot and mouth shut us down. We opened again when we could, and we will again. It will be more important than ever now. We have to give our children the time.
to stand and stare, to wonder at the world that is theirs, theirs to love, theirs to care for. We have in great part been responsible for making a hothouse of this world, turned need to greed and speed, taken, not given. We have fire, pestilence, flood and war, all man-made. These children who cannot come to the farm this week are amongst those who can help put things right. Education will finally be the only way forward. I think that penguin publisher, who knew and understood that so well, and whose spirit walks the river with us every day, will love to see again the children enjoying his beloved Devon countryside. He'll be there with them at story time too, I reckon, especially if the book they're lying there listening to, engrossed in their pyjamas, is a puffin book. <laughs>